This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Diana Walsh Pasolka. Diana is an author, a professor of religious studies, and an artist. In this episode, we explore Zen and the art of art, precognition and mystical states in creativity, decolonizing your mind, is creativity the quintessential nature of the divine, and the library of Alexandria versus the internet. But first. I would love to talk about, especially art here, because with the publication of American Cosmic, I was, um, I had a lot of feedback from artists. And when I say a lot, I'm talking about every day. (laughs) So I received artwork in the mail. I received poems and poetry. I received a lot of academic artists who reached out to me and, you know, authors and writers and performance artists. I mean, art in like the big category art, right? And so that caused me to think about what did I actually do? What was I writing? You know, what did I write? And so I personally love art and I've thought about art in my academic career Um, I was an artist as a teenager, thought that I would be an artist. I learned a lot of what I would call Zen Buddhism from art. One of the best teachers, in my opinion, of Zen Buddhism was not a Zen Buddhist, but was a visiting artist at the university I attended when I was an undergraduate. So, yeah, so art, what is, you know, what's going on with it? And why are artists, you know, why did they resonate so much with this academic book? Which I thought, by the way, when I was writing it, I have a friend, David Medcalf, who's also an artist, by the way, but is a techie. So his his day job is being a techie for the University of Georgia. And I had been sending him some chapters in the book and and he was a reader, it would give me really interesting feedback. And I used to joke with him and say, well, this book will get to 10 readers, but those will be very important readers. And we both laughed when it, it, it you know, it, went, <laughs> it, it made it past the 10 readers. Let's put it that way. All right. So art, what, what's going on? So to reassess what I was doing, I have to go back to a conference that I had while I was writing the book. Um, and this was a conference in Esalen with the people at the Center for Theory and Research. And it was organized, I even think I may have been one of the organizers of that conference uh, with Jeff Kripal. And one of the, two of the people that were in the conference were Alex Gray, who's an artist, and his wife. um, And they have, you know, they kind of created a religion out of their art. And, you know, he's an amazing visionary artist who a lot of his, Art comes from visionary experiences, which he has either taking ayahuasca or doing LSD or something like that. And so he gave this really remarkable presentation, um, not about his art, but about his friend's art. And a lot of it had, you know, basically seen 9-11. And it was astonishing to me the accuracy of these predictions, some of them five years, some of those seven years before the actual horrible tragic event. And I was stunned by this presentation. And so after that, I became acquainted with the work of Eric Vargo, 
Time Loops. He's the author of Time Loops. And he, he talks a lot about how literary works and art do forecasting, right? So they kind of predict the future, but what's really going on with, with that? So he has, his, he has a great theory about how that happens and the nature of time. So I guess that that conference and also, you know, the people that I met and the kinds of things that I was thinking about really hooked me into this idea that when we do creative work, we're going into a space that's very real. A lot of the visionary mystic literature discusses these spaces where we go when we do these kinds of activities and what happened, you know, now we know what happens to our brains. Our brains change in terms of the kinds of, you know, the states that they're in are different than normal conscious states. And so I think what this led me to just think about or just, you know, speculate upon, I guess, is that these places are pretty real. And sometimes they have to do with what we will be experiencing, what we call the future. And we can accurately identify things that will happen by either drawing them or painting them or writing about them. And so, yeah, so it led me more to think about mystic states and art. When you consider that coupling of mystical states and creativity, did you find tendrils connecting back to your early life as an artist and that numinous experience of something coming from nothing. I'm wondering about the kinship between mystical union and the intimacy with spirit that we can experience in making art. Okay. My earliest experiences with art, and when I look back on my life now, and I look at my early years as, you know, I mean, really, what was I doing? You know, when I was between the ages of 11 and 25, I think about those years and I think of all the very strange experiences I had. And, you know, I was an innocent kid, really. What was I doing? And so I think in a lot of ways, I was doing a lot of inner work, but I didn't know it because I was a kid. So here are some examples. My art. I was naturally drawn to do art. I don't know actually why I was drawn to do art, but I do, I would I was actually fairly good at it. So I do it and I I went to a Catholic school and it was run by sisters, okay, the Sisters of Mercy. And there was one particular teacher there who was an artist and uh, she basically just let us do what we wanted and she would come around and give us a little teaching here and there, right? So I do the art and what we were doing in that class was basically we were taking something like a picture or an object, and we're basically just replicating it on our, our palette, our artists, the picture. We just draw the thing, okay? And so she was really meticulous, and she gave me a lot of tools to replicate what I was seeing. And it didn't occur to me that that was actually something like a teaching. Okay. So that was basically what that was doing was that was causing me to see what was really there. Because a lot of times when we look at things, we see what we think is there, right? We see concepts that come that replace what is actually there, right? So it's like the Plato's cave thing. We don't actually see what's there. We just see something that we've been taught to see. And so what art did for me in those early years was it 
taught me to stop doing that. It taught me to actually encounter what was going on in that time without conceptions, you know, without preconceptions. Now, is that possible? Probably not, but I think you could do pretty well at decolonizing your mind of what you think a crunched up piece of paper looks like, right? So one of the things that I learned when I was an undergraduate with this visiting professor of art, who, by the way, probably wasn't religious at all or had no clue about Zen, but this is what he did. The first day of class, he comes into class and he smashes up a a piece of paper that he finds and he throws it on the table. And all of us undergrads are like, what is he doing? And he says, draw that, right? We're like, wow, how uninteresting, you know, but we did, we drew it and he came along and he looked at my picture and he, he said to his grad student, ah, ah, I think they're getting it, you know? And I thought, what am I getting? Well, what I was getting was that I was actually drawing what I saw. I wasn't drawing what I thought a crunched up piece of paper looked like, but a lot of people were, they were drawing what they thought a crunched up piece of paper looked like. Now, let's also, when I was in high school, I would talk to, you know, I had some teachers that I talked to a lot. And one of the teachers would tell me things like, here, draw a human being. Show me what you think a human being looks like. And so I draw what I thought a human being looks like. Well, what is that? You know, human beings are completely different, right? So why, how do you choose then to draw what you think is an example of a human being? So a lot of people would draw like a stick figure and give it to this professor or this person. And I drew two, I drew two people. I drew a man and a woman because I was like, well, I can't just draw a non-binary person. You know, I didn't have that language then, but that's what I was thinking at the time. And so, you know, the teacher looked at it and, and said, oh, that's really interesting. This is what you think of human beings. And then kind of explained by, by looking at the picture, you know, you have an idealized version of the human being because this is how you do it, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, wow, that was when I first realized that our conceptions dictate what we see and also how we represent what we see. So now when I look back on my early time, you know, I'm seeing that I actually was engaged in a lot of work. I didn't understand it as work at the time, but it was self-work. It was basically the work of decolonizing my mind of what of assumptions about reality. And I think that art in that sense works in that way. And then once we can clear our minds of those things, we can actually access places that we can't mostly we can't conceive of. And then we're able to recreate something or create something that's totally new and innovative. Hmm. This is an enchanting path you've taken us down already. As someone who did deep work at a young age through art and went on to become a scholar of inner lineages, I wonder if you feel art is the primordial lineage. The primordial lineage being the one where we, as creative beings, dive into the void and emerge with something that did not exist before. From the moment of the Big Bang, there has been ceaseless, infinite creativity, not only in outward form, but also the great within. No two moments have been duplicated. When we create art, are we emulating, intimately participating, in that primordial creative lineage. I'm curious about your creativity in relation to the divine. 
is creativity perhaps the quintessential nature of the divine? This is, this is a very good question. Let's see if I can give it an answer. <laughs> it's pretty deep. It is significant, I think, to, when I look at my own life, to understand that I've made, I made some pretty intense decisions early. Um, the two dis- main decisions I made, first, I recognized that I was spiritual as a youth. And I couldn't deny it. I was not going to deny it. And then from that, every time I think I'm doing something that would be considered non-creative or non-artistic, it ended up putting me straight back into questions about art and spirituality. Okay. So again, like just like with American Cosmic, you know, here I thought I was doing this you know, deep dive into kind of this belief system using the tools of my academic discipline and boom, it's big with artists and it puts me back into rethinking art. So I think that you're right. I think that, oh, here's another partial answer. Again, in American Cosmic, I looked at scientists who were pretty much at the top of their fields Well, they were, not pretty much. That's a California way of saying, yeah, they're at the top of their fields. And how did they get there? Well, they got there through really creative means. They got there through strategies that I would call absolutely artistic, creative, woo-woo, right? So once you delve into the history of science, you see that there is a history of unorthodox science. And that unorthodox science has everything to do with these visionary states that create things that weren't there before. And so, yeah, so I think that, yeah, there is something, you know, creation ex nihilo, right? So there is something that is Absolutely. Now, when we say sacred, you know, that's kind of a very big term to unpack. What does it mean to call it sacred? You know, a lot of people have baggage with respect to the term. But is there something innovative, so innovative and unprecedented with this act, this act of creation? Yeah, I think so. I think we can say that. Would I call it spiritual or sacred? In my life, it has been what I would interpret to be spiritual and sacred in this respect. When I think of sacred today, I think that the best, you know, I've studied a lot of religious traditions, uh, including philosophical traditions. So in the, you know, in the heart of a lot of those traditions, one finds a mystical tradition that suggests that there is a craft And when I say a craft, I'm talking about a a mode of being, a a way of being in which you take away assumptions so that you can be fully alive, so that you can experience, create, be with others in a pretty ecstatic way. And that's what I come away with again and again and again. I think that this is 
very well articulated by the allegory of the cave, like Plato's allegory of the cave. And strangely, he puts that in his Republic, which is a book about politics, right? And who would ever want his idea of the Republic? Not me. I know too many philosophers. So I'm like, no, I don't want that, you know, as a, as my political like utopia, okay, or my political reality even. But what can we learn from him placing this thing, the allegory of the cave, in which, by the way, if you look at some translations, like literal translations from the Greek, there are there's a good one by a Harvard professor. I could give it to you so you could link it for your um, listeners. But in that, it's not necessarily an allegory here, right? So we call it an allegory, but what he's doing is he's actually suggesting that there is something about being alive and being a human being that is linked to this craft of decolonizing our minds of what we think we're seeing and what actually is going on. Fascinating. And by the way, I really want to see your artwork now. <laughs> so there's... But you mentioned the mystical core of traditions, the inner or esoteric dimension each path may have. I want to ask you about the mystical core of inquiry itself, curiosity itself, including scientific inquiry. I love the tension of scientists with a strange history. I think you are spot on in pointing out that people at the top of their field including scientists, often have problematic ways of getting there, let's say. Problematic from a conventional, mainstream view. The romantic idea of science as this perfectly objective method, unencumbered by the mess of consciousness or interiority. In reality, great scientists may have lives that include <laughs> encounters with enormous radioactive raccoons. There's a lot of this in your book. Did it surprise you to find this secret inner life of the sciences? Can you give us a glimpse of how weird the path is for some of the figures behind the scenes? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was very surprised. I mean, I had been doing kind of like, I guess you could call it pretty strict religious studies stuff, right? Because I was getting tenure and I was doing this and that. And I was, you know, had a family, you know, everything. So I wasn't prepared really to go into, I actually wasn't prepared at all. So I thought that the writing of, of American Kazakh was going to be pretty straightforward. And, you know, I was like, okay, this seems like a pretty easy thing to write. And then once I got into it, all of a sudden, all of these um, scientists from weird affiliations, like either top five universities or three-letter agencies affiliated with the government. You know, we had people working for the space program and every one of them had, a, had so many patents and they were so successful and also, you know, financially successful. I mean, these people were just hitting it out of the park constantly. And I was amazed by them, but more amazing to me was that they were all freaks. <laughs> Every single one of them <laughs> was basically, you know, doing what a lot of people would call loon research, right? They were getting their patents through the weirdest, you know, in the weirdest ways. And so, yeah, that freaked me out. I was like, okay, this is not supposed to be the case. It's kind of going into the field of 
ufology and learning that the, the most nuts and bolts of those people who promote the nuts and bolts kind of hypothesis of extraterrestrial craft and things like that. Whoa, these people are actually astrologers or something. You know, that's what, that's what it was like. It was like, wow, really? This is actually the case? And so I was very motivated to look into anything that had to do with very well-known scientists who created things that were amazing. And then if they had UFO experiences. So this was like, you know, the first kind of big data set that I wanted. I wanted these guys, most of them were men, there were women, but a lot of the women wouldn't come forward and talk to me. I know who they are. They're extremely successful. Um, And I understand why they wouldn't, because women have just got to the point where they can have these jobs and they can be professors and things like that. So all of a sudden, they're not going to come out and say, yeah, I study UFOs too in this program or something like that. So my book was about, most. it was about the men, right? Who were having these experiences and who were very, you know, like Carrie Mullis. Okay. So you mentioned the raccoon, the electric raccoon story. That's Carrie Mullis's story. And I did get in touch with his wife, Nancy and, and Carrie, and invited them to a couple of the really interesting conferences. And he absolutely loved them. And he shared a lot about his raccoon story, which is even weirder than he actually writes about it in the book, his really awesome book, which I recommend. Yeah. So, you know, people like Carrie Mullis, Oh, and also, um, this is another thing for your listeners. Carrie has a really interesting description of creativity, which I think I may have quoted in my book, but it's it's on his website, Carrie uh, Mullis. And if you go in there and you search for creativity, uh, you'll see that he really understood creativity as this really weird thing. And so he knew, you know, he knew what he was doing. Um, he knew that the experience he was having were not normal science thing. You know, it's things that we associate with science. I'm beginning to think that they're actually normal science things. But for some reason, well, there are probably lots of good, not good reasons, but there are lots of reasons why scientists won't talk about them. If you look about, if you look into the history of government research into UAPs, though, you'll see a lot that has to do with creativity and anomalous cognition. Okay, I would be remiss if I failed to ask how Carrie Mullis's electric raccoon experience is even weirder than portrayed in the book. Weirder how? What? <laughs> wow. I'm so curious. There were more scientists involved than just himself. And I won't say who, but yeah. And Carrie has passed away. He passed away, I believe, two years ago or two and a half years ago. So. I won't, you know, I wouldn't be able to say, hey, Carrie, is it okay if I say, you know, talk about this? So, but maybe Nancy will, his his wife, you should have her on your show. She's really amazing. I would love to. The electric raccoon incident is one of my favorites, and it's emblematic of the general aliens and artists puzzle. A scientist, stock and trade is the objective, but with UFOs, UAPs, contact events, how tricky it is to get the subject out of the object, (laughs) 
The anomalous seems to relish and amplify that coupling. We seem to keep bumping up against this question, this hurdle. There are no objects without subjects. These enigmas are as big or bigger on the inside. Granted, the best scientists are hip to that and are working that magic already, but I wonder if you, (laughs) as a spiritual person, as, as a religious scholar, an artist, do you feel vindicated by this dynamic? Yeah, okay, so is there a kind of vindication? Um, I don't necessarily, this is how I see it. I see it as, I, and I go back to the allegory, which I hate to call it that, but, but there it is. You know, it's, a, it's this mystical, it's a, it's a short piece in this big treatise, political treatise, right? So you've got like, you've got that conundrum right there. Plato just get, gives us, you know, what he thinks the Republic should look like, right? And it's, it's very kind of nuts and bolts looking. And all of a sudden, he puts this mystical thing in there. Like, what? Like, what is that about? And what I think is really interesting is that perhaps the scientists who want it to be, you know, they're generally not the best scientists. Like you said, you know, the best of those scientists are already working the weird magic. They really are. And I have that quote in my book by Nietzsche that says that we wouldn't have the scientists if we didn't have the sorcerers first, right? And the witches and stuff like that. Well, he's right. He's absolutely right. And so here in the Plato's Republic, you have, it's interesting the way that philosophy is taught at the university level, because you have all of these philosophers teaching the Republic as if the allegory of the cave wasn't in there. And allegory is a really weird thing. It's a mystical text advocating for a mystical tradition and a mystical practice, okay, in this treatise about how the government should be run. Now, that's weird. And I think it's akin to this situation with scientists because you have people teaching science at the universities and things like that, right? But they're not teaching the weird science, okay? Well, some of them are. So if you take someone like James, who in my book, he's the scientist who I discuss, he's at the top five universities, amazing, okay? And then, you know, he told me a little bit about how he teaches his grad students. And a lot of times his grad students will say, you know, they'll come up with a bunch of data, but they won't have anything decent about the problem they're, they're trying to figure out. And so he looks at them and he sees this data that doesn't fit. And he sees that they kind of like don't use that data or they forget that data or they don't like it, you know, and they put it aside. And he says, what about this data right here? And they say, oh, yeah, I don't, eh, it doesn't really fit. And he says, yeah, it doesn't fit. He said, that's where you need to look. And so, you know, it's this kind of thing. It's the stuff that, and you'll see this in the quote on creativity by Kerry Mullis, you know, it's the stuff you ignore, but won't let you ignore it. It keeps coming back, right? It's like this, you know, (laughs) I mean, it does. It keeps coming back. It bothers you. And then finally, boom, something will happen and you'll get why it's there. It's been there the whole time. So these kinds of strategies, I actually am working on that right now. Um, I'm working on another methodology. You know, we we learn all these strategies and methods of teach, not teaching, but of doing research in graduate school. And then as professors, we kind of hone them. And, you know, well, the research taught me the research into American Cosmic. At first, I had to do this intuitively because this is a history of classified information and also 
mis targeted misinformation, right? There was a lot of misinformation and people, misinformers, people who like Richard Doty, you know, he's a known misinformer. He says, I did this, right? I misinformed the public about UFOs purposely and I was being paid to do it. Okay. So do you think that those people went away? No. Okay. So how do we do any kind of research into this in quagmire of basically it's the hall of mirrors, you know, how do we do research? Well, you have to rely. And I got a lot of this from Jacques Vallée. You have to rely on your intuition and he would call it discernment, which is a Catholic term, right? This term from religious studies, not religious studies, but this Catholic tradition of discernment. Who can I trust? Who can I not trust? Who, who gives off the, the BS bell, right? The BS trigger. So from the engaging of the, not just the phenomena, but the people who see, feel like they're in contact with, you know, this kind of phenomena and these people being scientists, you know, how then do we create a research method or, or you know, strategies for accurately getting to this truth of UAPs or some kind of truth of UAPs. And I'm calling it UAPs now because of every, the culture has shifted, you know, within the, this summer, the culture has shifted with respect to UA, aliens, UFOs, that sort of thing. So, but your question was, I have to go back to the question of, you know, do I feel vindicated? Um, kind of. <laughs> I have to be honest. <laughs> Heck yeah. One for, one for Team Interiors. Yeah. That's beautiful. Is that your next book where this work will be unveiled? Yes. I'm working with some with a scholar from the University of Chicago because he's doing the same thing. So we we have some parallel research. And we're kind of get, you know, working out, how, you know, basically because there are a lot of grad students who basically want to know, you know, how do we do this? How can we do this? And, you know, a lot of people want to know, how do we do this? And so we're just kind of both of us engaged in some pretty, I would call it research that didn't have a lot of guidelines to it because, you know, not, there aren't a lot of academics who do this research either from the scientific angle, because they won't get funding for it, or from the angle that, you know, the humanities angle, which was my angle, social science humanities, because we won't get tenure or something like that. So now, now that the Pentagon report came out and Avi Loeb, you know, from Harvard uh, got a big bunch of money to do this kind of study. And by the way, I believe that the person, I don't, I can only speculate, but I think I know who gave him the money. Those are the people, those very wealthy people are the scientists working the magic, you know, because now there are tech billionaires, right? And they're, they're computer scientists and scientists. And so they are doing the weird stuff and they know that this is where to put the money. And they do, they put the money there. Like I said, in the beginning of my book, I haven't met so many people who have sources, then when I began my study, it was just like, boom, they all came out of the woodwork. Can't wait to dive into that. What's the timeline looking like? I'm doing it now. And it's uh, the, the working title is called Contact. And I'm doing a series of 
collaborative sessions, I guess, with my colleague this academic year. So I believe it'll be ready by next summer. Fabulous. I will be waiting expectantly. You made reference to it's been there the whole time. I would like to ask you about the old and the new when it comes to these puzzles. You have a deep historical context when it comes to the phenomena. There's a lot going on that feels like current events. The Tic Tacs, for instance. The government report that just came out. Mainstream coverage of the Tic Tacs ended up on 60 Minutes, the New York Times, and all of those big mainstream outlets. Back a few decades, we had SRI, Government Studies of Psychopacities, and preceding that, Edgar Casey. Preceding Edgar Casey, you can go back a few hundred years and find Emanuel Swedenborg and a constellation of mystics before him that stretch back millennia, reporting anomalous experiences and capacities. So, from your perspective, how much of this is new, genuinely recent, and how much of it is a mundane amnesia where we're simply not cognizant of our own deep history as it situates with the anomalous? Ah, uh, yeah, this is such a great question. This reminds <laughs> I, I, I know your listeners are going to hate me for saying this because I keep coming back to it. But that's exactly the gift and lesson from the allegory of the cave. It's basically me saying, you have forgotten. You don't remember. And this is how you remember. You engage in this mystical tradition of decolonizing your mind of what the state has put in there. Okay. Now, I know that's pretty intense to say, but I say that with having thought about it for several years now. And it's basically saying, I think this is what is going on here. So yeah, so what happened to me after American Cosmic was that I met a lot more people who populate American Cosmic. The same characters, only supercharged even more so. And that, again, that took me to a new level of epistemological shock, what John Mack calls it. You know, I thought I had had enough. I was Felt like I had been stung by a million bees. You know, I was like, that's the first American cosmic. I was like, wow, okay. Well, the next level was even more frightening, more amazing, more revealing, I guess. Um, and what I saw was exactly what you just pointed out, was that this is not new, okay? So what I saw was that the people who were coming toward me and wanting to engage me in discussion were doing practices that I recognized from the, well, basically the Western tradition, right? The Catholic Western tradition of mysticism, you know, of people going to these places that, you know, mystical places that they believe are real and then bringing information back from these places and, you know, making reality with them, right? Making our world with them. And so these people were actually doing that under programs. And I thought, wow. This is just bizarre to me. I didn't know these things existed. I didn't know these families existed. I didn't know that these traditions existed in the ways in which they exist. And so I also could see that people, that this information is out there and very readily accessible. And we 
can know them. It's almost as if my life, even as a kid, was, you know, onward up, was basically every few years being reminded and then saying, oh, yeah, I have to remember this. And then all of a sudden, boom, going back into being, I guess, going into the matrix again for want of another, you know, of a, it basically, it's, a, it's shorthand for saying what happens and then coming out again. And how can we stay out? How can we, you know, or, or can we, you know, is it possible to constantly be in the state of uh, being awake, right? So those, so, you know, I don't know. And is it healthy to do? <laughs> what a perfectly suspense drenched in conclusion <laughs> to a sentence is it safe to do it i think your team you kripal valet would say clearly often it is not safe the sacred is often not safe it's as unpredictable as it is exalted i love that you highlighted this question is it safe? It can lead to the disassembly, the annihilation of the percipient, the experiencer. Do you want to talk about the times that it doesn't go well? Yeah. I mean, think about it. Think about the people who've led reform movements, uh, basically using the method of waking up, right? So like Socrates, people who are affiliated, you know, like the Jesus movement. I differentiate that from Christianity, right? Because Jesus was actually, if you if you go into maybe the oral tradition that he actually participated in, it sounds like he was basically talking about waking up from the state, right? State power and helping each other as human beings, right? Kind of being charitable and stuff like that. Uh, what happened to these people? Yeah, so they didn't have a great end. And let's look at, I'm right now doing a section in the book about Copernicus, right? So there's a, you know, we talk about the Copernican revolution and, you know, the people that were influenced by him, um, you know, he died right as he published his book about the spheres, right? The heavenly spheres in their orbits and talked to, you know, and this was a revolutionary idea that we weren't at the center of God's universe, right? And so he died before he could be punished for that. But the people who he influenced, like Kepler, I mean, Kepler's mom got the brunt of, because Kepler was, was very powerful in his day, but his mother was accused of witchcraft and almost killed for it. And then he had to, you know, stop what he was doing to basically argue for her, the fact that she wasn't a witch and, you know, those kinds of things. Galileo, okay? So, what happened to these people who suggested different, you know, who were basically awake to what was there and then observed it and their work was based on it, right? So, yeah, there are dangers to it because it, I think what happens is that it, upsets the powers that be, frankly. And I think that's why Plato put that mystical tradition, the advocacy of it within the Republic, but didn't give it a lot of commentary afterwards. He just kind of stuck it in there. And if you're, if you're awakened, you know, enough to see, well, why did he do that? And why, you know, because, you know, it belongs within the state, but only in a certain way, right? It belongs within the state, but be careful, this is making me curious to ask you about the Eleusinian mysteries, specifically in relationship to 
the stabilizing nature of our institutions versus the destabilizing quality of radical realizations. I find the Ellicinian Mysteries captivating, this 1500 to 2000 year tradition of people being initiated into a mystical experience that liberated them from the fear of death, among other things. It was a direct experience between you and reality, with a capital R, no intermediaries. Not an exaggeration to say that this was the most important rite of passage in a person's life for many centuries. Now contrast that with what followed. Christianity becomes the state religion, the mysteries are abolished, and from then forward it's all about the intermediaries. No more direct realization. Now there are bouncers between you and the divine. (laughs) Direct gnosis becomes indirect or mediated gnosis. How do you feel about that shift in our lives as seekers? Is it retro-romantic to feel that was a great loss? What did we forfeit? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, And there are a lot of things in that question. So I guess I have to think, where should I start with that? Um, I'm not, so in terms of history, you know, there are, I guess the question of, you know, is there kind of like this linear history or or are there, you know, histories and kind of like micro histories that all go in different directions? That's, I tend to think that most likely is the case. And so when I think about the, these mysteries and what we have lost. I'm not, I guess one thing that we may have lost, but I don't think we have actually, and I'll I'll tell you exactly why I don't think that. So there's an idea that we lost this tradition that recognizes that one could be a recipient of something sacred and tense, and it could be a group thing, you know, it could be something that the culture passes on and we don't necessarily, there is no priest involved or, you know, mediator or anything like that. Okay. So there's this idea that, that, yeah, it's probably the case. Okay. So, but our culture has different ways of doing that. I think that we still actually do that. And this is how I think we do it now. I talk a lot about technology. In fact, my book is about technology, American Cosmic. And what I see now is that, you know, let's take this Tic Tac, this like, you know, the Nimitz episode, which there are a lot of weird things about that, that we could talk about or not talk about. But the one thing that I think is interesting is this, is that some of the people who witnessed those things have had what they call or they identify now as post-contact effects, which threw them into mystical states for which they weren't prepared. Or maybe they were prepared. Some of them were prepared for them. And some of them had some pretty intense experiences afterwards that you know they couldn't really understand. And so a culture like the culture that you're describing would have helped them because it would have given them the tools within, you know, and also the actual community, the Sangha, 
right? So in Buddhism, it's called the Sangha, the community of initiates, the community that's there to say, you're not going crazy. This has happened to you, right? Kind of thing. All right. So do we have that now? No. Okay. We don't have it like they had it back in that time period. But do we have it kind of? Well, we actually do have it. So what I see going on now is that technology makes available mass, ex- you know, mass exposure to what could be like a Marian apparition. Okay, so think of the 1917 Marian apparition in Portugal, where a lot of people, like thousands of thousands of people saw this apparition. They all had weird experiences. They weren't cohesive experiences. Like they all had their own types of experiences of this, but they all had experiences. So much so that the Catholic Church, which doesn't easily do this, came along and said, okay, this was truly a supernatural event. We don't know what to make of it, but it was supernatural. All right. So now what we have is we have like the Tic Tac videos are now on YouTube. We can see them. We can go and see them online. And millions and millions and millions of people can see them now. And we tend not to give that a lot of credit. We tend to think, oh, yeah, we can see them. But there's a lot going on in terms of seeing that, right? So what's going on cognitively a lot? What's happening physiologically, right? So whatever's happening cognitively is also happening physiologically. They're one and the same. And, you know, we're also developing at the moment ways to understand those experiences because now people are seeing these experiences they're reading about them in the new york times whether or not we should think that that's good or not is another question or or accurate or you know are we being fed certain information you know that let's just put bracket that question right now people are seeing these things they're all they're the pentagon comes out and says that we think that these are real, but we don't know what they are kind of thing. You know, so there's a lot of credibility attached to these experiences now that people are experiencing when they're watching them on YouTube. And I think that that's kind of this, <laughs> I, I know I, I think I'm going to get a lot of, I won't call it hate, but pushback on this and maybe from you, I don't know. But I think it's similar to the mysteries. It's, a, it's our own version of the mysteries. Yeah, I don't disagree. The community that safeguards the mysteries migrates from epoch to epoch, and that reality with a capital R always finds ways to inhabit and express through new places and people. I love that you brought up the post-contact effects that military personnel are experiencing, mystical states, continuing high strangeness. I wouldn't want the job that secret keepers are saddled with, which is (laughs) to bleach the strange out of the phenomena. Good luck. Good luck removing the electric raccoons from the reality that we're immersed in. Not a fun job and one doomed to failure, I would argue. That is the theater of the absurd, not the electric raccoons but the attempt to remove them. There does seem to be a sense of humor in the phenomenon, but to your response around what we did or did not lose with the Eleusinian Mysteries, I agree 
You're never going to expunge the mysteries from humanity. It's our native endowment as sentient beings. It can't be lost, I agree. If I have any pushback to your response, it might just be around the fringes of what we're settling for. Feels like we're divesting ourselves of our own depths increasingly. Art is commodified, converted to mere entertainment. You and I reflecting on what we have or have not lost makes me want to ask you this <laughs> curveball question. Library of Alexandria or the internet? Which would you choose? Goodness. You can only have one. Oh. Right? That's like a knife in the heart right there to make that choice. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh. Oh. Well, gosh. Oh, boy, how am I going to answer that? Let me think about it. Hmm. Your answer is irreversible. Okay, I will. And this is going to, it's a bad choice, of course, because there is no good choice here, because I would choose both if I could, which, you know. All right. So um, this is what I would choose. I would choose the internet, and for this reason, that. By the time you and I were born, all those, you know, some of the most important books were already, you know, gone from the most important knowledge, most likely from the library in Alexandria was, is gone. So we don't even know what that was, but we have a lot of mystical texts on the internet and we do have, you know, um, again, we also have cultures on the internet that keep mystical traditions alive so i would choose the internet tough choice impossible choice but i think we can agree the library of alexandria probably smelled better <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> probably did to hear part two of our conversation with diana walsh pasolka just click the link in the show notes click it click clickety click click it and become a patron or a plus member. What do patrons and plusers get that minus listeners get and Patrons and plus members acquire the compound vision of a dragonfly. 30,000 facets strong. You will need such kaleidoscopic optics to read the Library of Alexandria. <laughs> You're plus, your patrons, so you get access to the Lib of A. We know the bouncer at the Akashic Records. He got us in. He's the departed soul of Sir Thomas fucking Phillips. Bibliomania, much, Tom? The Library of Alexandria is no big whoop. You can leaf through it in a day, provided you've prismatic powers of perception. And you do! Minus listeners, you get a paper cut on your cornea and a soiled copy of Fifty Shades of Grey. So soiled, in fact, that 25 of those shades are scarcely legible. Half the book is the Rorschach blots of someone who surged and deterged themselves with the pages post-onanism. Enjoy, Minus listeners. It's free. It's free. It's free. It's free. Podcasts should be free. 
Plusers and patrons meet me by Shakespeare's first folio where Sade will be reading aloud. Uh, all right, my shit and gold bricks out of my money butt. That's true. <laughs> Last week on the Plus episode, we took a long look at Brad Steiger's questionnaire, designed to help people determine whether or not they are star children. This week, Dr. Edith Fiore's test, created to help experiencers understand whether or not they are abductees. In Fiore's book, Abductions, she explores the subconscious and its record of all the events which have transpired in an experiencer's life. These include the traumatic events beyond the purview of standard waking awareness. Fiore's work revealed to her that critical parts of experiencer's histories are housed in the subconscious, but can be accessed and worked with through hypnotic methods. She also created a checklist for respondents to help gauge the likelihood that they are abductees. Questions include, Have you experienced a period of time for which you cannot account? Do you suffer from any sleep disorders? Do you have nightmares or dreams of aliens or UFOs? On waking, do you have unusual bodily sensations such as tingling, numbness, or temporary paralysis? Have any unexplained marks appeared on your body? Are there any bruises that look as if blood had been drawn from your body? Have you found any new red lines or scars on your body? Do you suffer from nosebleeds or bleeding from your ears or find spots of blood on your sheets that cannot be explained? Do you feel as though you are being monitored, watched over, and or being contacted by UFOs or aliens? Do you have repeated UFO sightings? Do you have a vague memory of a close encounter with an alien? Are you aware of some unexplained healing? Have you found yourself spontaneously cured of some illness? And do you experience an irrational fear or any bodily sensation when UFOs or extraterrestrials are mentioned? For more information on Edith Fiore's work, which includes books on abductions, encounters, and spirit possessions. Check the show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one sessions with me, Stuart Davis, doing deep inner work around creativity, spiritual practice, and anomalous experiences. I work with a menu of many different methodologies which are adjusted to your needs and goals as a seeker or experiencer. Mention Aliens and Artists and receive a big discount. For a limited time, I'm offering a bundle of four weekly sessions for only $400. That's $200 off. These sessions are unique and personal. I'm not a clock watcher. Our time together is relaxed and the work is confidential. I'm a certified transpersonal hypnotherapist, certified death doula, and a 30-year meditation practitioner. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session, or just click the link in the show notes. 
Also, if you're an experiencer, be sure to check out theexperiencergroup.com. It's a private membership site for people who've known all variety of anomalous events, from precognition, mediumship, near-death, telepathy, missing time, non-human entities, and more. Click the link in the show notes to get a free trial and become part of a positive anomalous culture. The Experiencer Group. Trying to forget the riddle What 